You're listening to HIV News and Views, a podcast series from thebody.com. For a transcript of this podcast and for more interviews and first-person stories, visit us on the web. This is Bonnie Goldman, Editorial Director of TheBody.com. I'm here today with Dr. Anthony Urbina from St. Vincent's Medical Center in New York, where he is Director of HIV Education. Dr. Urbina, tell me about the new initiative. It's a new widget that you're involved with. We received a grant from the New York State Department of Health to educate every provider in the state on post-exposure prophylaxis, how to diagnose acute HIV infection, and HIV testing. We had this challenge, and what we thought is let's use widget technology as an efficient way to kind of disseminate this information using technology for every physician. We came up with this AIDS widget. What it has is on the left, we have an AIDS clock. In New York State, there is one new HIV transmission every one hour and 50 minutes. We thought that would be a good way to inform everyone about the impact of HIV, in particular here in New York. Every one hour and 50 minutes, you're going to see the clock move one. As of January 1, 09, we've had about 3,400 new HIV transmissions in New York State. What we did is that with this widget, we put in these video podcasts, which are instructional videos instructing physicians what to do in the event of either an occupational, meaning an actual needle stick or a non-occupational or a sexual exposure to HIV. We think that this information is vital and that there are gaps in that a lot of physicians either have been outside of their training for a long time or don't really understand what PEP is and don't really understand how to give it and that time is of essence with PEP. This is really for providers so that they can get this very valuable information and really help their patients, in particular may be actually prevent HIV infection. Then on the bottom tabs, what we have are these text-based guidelines, which give all this information in very cogent, succinct guidelines that can be downloaded and printed. Tell me a little bit about when you started working on this. It was about a year ago. From our original concept to actually having it out took about one year. We actually partnered with this person from Webflow Solutions. He's our IT guy, and he basically designed the widget We basically wrote the scripts, we filmed the videos, and we populated the content. What we're most proud of is that we have all of the HIV testing consent forms right there so people can download them. We feel it's a new form of publishing. It's one-stop shopping, very secure, kind of the anti-Google, anti-Bing way of actually browsing. You know you're going to get very, very reliable medical information. Let's talk a little bit about PEP just in general. Was this to solve a problem that um, many physicians don't know how to care for someone who comes in and says, I just might have been exposed to HIV? Did you find that people were not knowing what to do or how soon to do it? I think that the biggest issue is that doctors and institutions weren't aware that the timely administration of PEP is essential in order for it to work. The animal data shows that the earlier one gives PEP, the more likely it is to be effective. If you look at HIV pathogenesis, HIV can go from any type of actual mucosal surface into the blood as soon as five days. It's really important that the first dose be given immediately. But now you need to know when to give PEP and when not to give PEP. There are certain risks where the risk is really insignificant and there's really no benefit to giving it. So really instructing physicians on how and when to give PEP to fill this gap in knowledge. What's important for PEP is that you give the first dose 
as soon as possible. If you can't get information about the source patient, if you think you can, but if more than two hours have elapsed, give the patient the first dose right away. There's very little downside to giving one dose of antiretroviral regimens. You have to remember that we give these drugs to patients for decades. How they feel PEP works is that if you can trap HIV locally, if you can prevent the virus from having those initial steps of viral replication, if you can contain the infection locally, then your body can effectively eliminate it. But once it goes to the lymph nodes, starts to replicate and gets into the blood, then you cannot prevent infection. From exposure to HIV getting into the blood may occur in as few as five days. So you really want to get that PEP in as quickly as possible. If you find subsequently that the patient is HIV negative, okay, you can discontinue PEP in that patient that is exposed. There's just one caveat if that source patient is an acute HIV infection because they may be antibody negative. What we advise is only stop PEP if the antibody and the viral load of the source patient are both negative, just to really be secure in that there's no potential for HIV exposure. The worst thing that you'd want to do is if a person was an acute HIV infection and you just tested antibody, but they were highly infectious and you told the exposed worker to stop. Now, the PEP regimens can be altered. So for example, if that source patient has a multidrug resistant virus, you might want to alter the PEP regimen to maybe include newer antiretroviral agents like the integrase inhibitors or the second generation protease inhibitors, for example, darunavir. If, in fact, you can determine that that source patient has evidence of a multidrug resistant virus, and we know that those can be transmitted. But again, all of this information, you don't have to determine right there. Give the first dose. We know that there's evidence that just one single agent can be 80% effective. We even know that in HIV-positive women that had evidence of AZT resistance, giving AZT even in those women had a prophylactic effect in further reducing the actual likelihood of transmission. So give the standard first dose, and then you can think later and tweak it later. But if you wait, if you delay the initiation of PEP, it can result in transmission. You can update this information at any time you want, right? And as new guidelines come about. And I understand you have guidelines also for hep C and hep B as well. Yes. What is often forgotten is that oftentimes exposures to HIV can also carry a risk of exposures to hepatitis B or C. Now, both B and C are much more infectious than HIV. If that person that exposed you had hepatitis C or hepatitis B, you are much more likely to get those infections than if they had HIV. It's important to also understand that for hep B, there are things that um, a doctor can do. Now, most of us are immunized against hepatitis B, but you definitely want to check to make sure that your titers are adequate. Now for C, there is no effective prophylaxis, but what you want to do is you want to manage exposure. Why that's important is because if you can pick up hepatitis C very early and refer to an expert for treatment, you can be up to 90% effective in actually treating the infection uh -huh. and preventing it from becoming chronic. For a hepatitis C exposure, that would be mostly intravenous drug use, or would it be among MSM? Absolutely. We think about hepatitis C risk exposure really coming from 
needles, either intravenous drug use or with actual transfusions before they started screening. But what we're seeing more, in particular in big urban centers, is increased rates of hepatitis C acquisition through sexual exposure. In the vast majority of these cases, it has involved MSM, men who have sex with men, where they've been involved with anal sex. Typically, it's involved a lot of trauma to the anus and also associated with sex toys and also with the use of drugs, for example, crystal methamphetamine. So you also need to screen patients for sexual exposure to hep C. Do you have actual guidelines for that? Because that's something that really needs to be explained to physicians. And I think a lot of the MSM patients wouldn't be aware that that would be something to tell someone in an emergency room, like if there was a lot of blood and that that was a risk for hepatitis C. If they walked in and they said, I had an exposure, they would not be um, talked to about hepatitis C, but just about HIV. Again, we have a gap in terms of knowledge. We want to instruct our physicians to consider not just HIV, but in particular hepatitis C, in particular in those high-risk groups. But I think what you'll find is that if you were to interview physicians, that I think there's a real big, big lack of knowledge about PEP in general, but in particular about um, hepatitis C exposures. I understand there's also a phone number that people can call in New York State to get more information. Yes. Okay. So there is a 24-7 PEP line number that any New York State medical provider can use. This is a 24-7 PEP line that is out of San Francisco. It is out of UCSF. It's called the National Clinical Consultation Center. They're basically a think tank for PEP. It's very much operated like an actual Bloomberg newsroom is that there are these healthcare professionals that are just dedicated to giving guidelines and also recommendations for exposure cases that may be a little tricky or where you're having some difficulty deciding if to give PEP. For example, let's say that there was an exposure risk where the source patient was known HIV positive and let's say had a multi-drug resistant virus this 24-7 PEP line can help those doctors make the best choices. We didn't talk about the regimen. What are the recommendations right now if someone is exposed to HIV? There are a couple of guidelines that are out there. I think the two that are most prominent are the CDC guidelines and then the New York State AIDS Institute guidelines. The New York State AIDS Institute guidelines are a little simpler in that what they recommend is that patients be given PEP if it's indicated, if the exposure occurred within 36 hours. The CDC extends that up to 72 hours. But I think the point is that the earlier the better. I think that a lot of people um, think that they have up to 36 hours or up to 72 hours to make up their mind. But really, there's this golden two hours where it's most effective. The New York State AIDS Institute guidelines recommends three drugs from the same class, either Combovir with Viriad or Truvada, with AZT. Now, why they include tenofovir is that we know that it gets very good penetration in the general tract. It's also very well tolerated. Why they also include AZT is that if you look at a lot of the data in terms of mother-to-child transmission studies, um, most of those studies use AZT. So really, most data comes from AZT, but they wanted to increase the barrier or the actual effectiveness of this drug, so they added a third agent. That's basically the combination that they recommend. The CDC has a more 
complicated algorithm. They basically divide it up into low risk or high risk. If it's low risk exposure, what they recommend is just two drugs, either Combivir or Truvada. If it's a higher risk, what they recommend is adding a third agent, either a non-nuke like a Favrins or a PI like either Atazanavir or Kaletra. Those are basically the two guidelines. With our widget, we give the New York State AIDS Institute guidelines of the three nukes. Is there any knowledge about which one is more effective, or are they the same? There's very little data to support PEP. There's really only been one study. It was um, a CDC study. It was an actual retrospective case control study. They looked at doctors that were exposed to HIV, and they looked at those that were given just one single agent, AZT. And what they found is that those that were given AZT had an 80% risk reduction in HIV. But that's the only study that's there. The other evidence comes from mother-to-child transmission. We know that in those women that have not had any antiretroviral history, if you give them drugs, you can actually reduce their chance of transmission. But also in women that have not had any ARVs, if the child is given a dose, you can also further reduce the likelihood. The third line of evidence just comes from animal data, macaques, to show that these drugs can be effective. I'm not sure that the science behind PEP is going to improve much more because now it would be unethical. <laughs> and it'd be very difficult to actually design a study. Well, one, you couldn't deny somebody PEP because there's enough evidence to show that it works. Secondly, to look at if one ARV regimen is better than another, it would be very, very difficult because in order to actually design the study, you would need such huge sample sizes to show any difference, and I just don't think those studies are going to be funded. How are you publicizing this widget, and are, are you providing training for people to figure out how to use it? That's our next step, <laughs> um, which we have to work on. Right now, our phase one is to get it downloaded into every ED throughout New York State. You mean emergency departments? Yeah, emergency departments. What we're doing is that we've compiled our email list of all of the emergency departments, and we are going to send this widget via email for all of the directors to download this widget onto their desktops. Mm -hmm. We do want to find some other marketing strategies, so if you have any ideas, let me know, Bonnie. <laughs> do you think this is a sign of things to come in terms of educating physicians throughout the United States? I mean, it's a way to control where the information is being offered. It's a way to always be able to update the information. Are you the first state to be doing this? This is the first time that this type of technology has been used for medical education, definitely for HIV. I think it is a sign of how... Actually, the use of technology can really assist in people disseminating medical information in a way that is cost-effective and is far-reaching. Mm -hmm. So I do think it's a sign of the future. I know there are patients who may want to use this kind of widget so they can know what needs to be done. And when they go to the emergency room and say, by the way, I, I did this or I did that, and I think yeah. you have to look at the hep C ramifications of this as well as the HIV. Do you think that might be helpful? Absolutely. Anybody can download this widget. Uh -huh. It was really designed for healthcare providers, but I think for consumers and patients, any type of medical information that they can get, I think can be helpful. I think we're entering a new era of healthcare as well, where I don't think the doctor is all knowing anymore. I think patients have to take their own responsibility for their health and work with your healthcare provider. So I think the more information that patients can have, the better outcomes we're going to have. 
I know a lot of people come into an emergency room all hysterical, um, very emotional, and they have a low-risk situation. And the doctors are just like, oh, how do we get this person to stop crying? Yeah. We can't just reject them from treatment. Well, maybe we should just give them something. Do you have recommendations or do you address this kind of issue? We do. As part of our training for PEP, there's two things that I think are very important. One, that it's important to have the information to know when PEP is indicated and when it's not. So when is it indicated? Well, there are various scenarios that one needs to know. Definitely for a needle stick or for a sharps exposure, if the source is either HIV infected or their HIV status is unknown, then that's an indication for PEP. For the non-occupational, um, those are a little more complicated, but for example, any type of anal insertive or actually receptive intercourse PEP is indicated. The same thing for vaginal, insertive, and also receptive. For oral sex, it's a little trickier. It's only really indicated if there's been actually receptive oral intercourse that's um, gone all the way through to ejaculation. There's a lot of gray areas, but for example, if a patient comes in and if it's very low risk, if there's been um, sperm on intact skin, that's not an indication for PEP. You need to have really the confidence to say no. <laughs> it isn't indicated here that the risk from these drugs outweigh any benefit. Now, with any exposure, though, it's important to test patients. Just because it isn't indicated doesn't mean that you don't test them in a month. For any type of exposure, one should monitor for HIV infection. A long time ago, the rule was that you had to know the status of your partner. And that is a very hard thing for a lot of people who are in these situations. They right. just, they had anonymous sex with somebody and the condom broke and they don't even know the person's name. So they have no way of knowing. What's the recommendation? Absolutely, yeah. That's a very good question. The New York State AIDS Institute guidelines have been updated. If the source's status is unknown, we assume the worst case scenario. If the exposure justifies PEP, then if you do not know the status of the source patient, then PEP is indicated. Now, what's also important is that you test the patient that's been exposed for HIV. One, because PEP is not indicated for people that are already positive <laughs> because the meds that we use are really to prevent HIV. They're inadequate for treatment. That's an important distinction. And now with the advent of these rapid tests, it's very easy to ascertain the status of that person's that exposed. So that's also an important part of the algorithm is that you test that person that's exposed because they might already be HIV infected and then they don't need PEP. They need actual referral um, and possible treatment for their HIV. Thank you very much. Thank you, Vani. <laughs> The opinions expressed by hosts or interviewees in this podcast do not constitute professional advice, should not be considered substitutes for professional services, and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Body Health Resources Corporation or its sponsors. Please see the full disclaimer online at thebody.com. If you have comments or questions, please contact us. Thank you for listening to HIV News and Views. For more podcasts, be sure to visit us online at www.thebody.com.